Welcome. I'm glad you're with me tonight. Take your Bible and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're going to talk about excelling. Excelling still more. Um, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 2. The Bible says, Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus, that as you receive from us instructions as to how you ought to walk, and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more, for you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. I want to tell you the story of a great preacher you've probably heard about. He was uh, one of the, probably had something to do a little bit with the founding of the country indirectly. Um, I do, I personally hold historically that the United States was founded as a result of a preaching movement, and I wrote my doctoral dissertation uh, to that end. But there was a great preacher in the early 1700s by the name of Jonathan Edwards. He was a brilliant man, a brilliant theologian. He was a brilliant historian, and he was a brilliant preacher. His most famous sermon was entitled, The Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And uh, he, was a, he was a superior intellect in the time in which he lived in American history. And uh, he, was, he was a prominent pastor during what is known as the First Great Awakening that took place between 1735 through 1737, up to even 1744 in New England. And uh, he was a faithful shepherd of the same church uh, for many, many years in Northampton, Massachusetts. In fact, 23 years to be exact. And uh, he, he was unparalleled in his influence of preaching, save maybe Gilbert Tennant in the middle colonies, the son of William Tennant Sr. But there is an underlying, underlying drive and motive to Edward's powerful and lasting impact that was not mere personal devotion uh, to his profession, but it was his insatiable thirst for God and the things that concern God namely purity and holiness, virtue, truth. It's what he called religious affections. Religious affections. He was saved at the age of 17 when God irresistibly called him, and he reflected upon the, the divine transformation that took place in his thoughts and affections that followed immediately after his conversion. And though it's lengthy, I believe it would be helpful as uh, I share with you from his memoirs, Edward says, My mind was greatly fixed on divine things, almost perpetually, in contemplation on them. I spent most of my time thinking of divine things year after year, often walking alone in the woods in solitary places of meditation, soliloquy and prayer, and converse with God. It was always my manner at such times to sing forth my contemplation, so he actually sung what he thought. I was almost constantly in um, ex exuberant prayer wherever I was. Prayer seemed to be natural to me as the breath by which the inward burning of my heart had vent. The delights which I now felt in those things of religion were of 
an exceedingly different kind of from those before mentioned that I had when I was a boy, he says. And what then I had no more mo notion of than one born blind has a pleasant and beautiful colors. They were of more inward, pure, soul-animating and refreshing nature. Those former delights never reached the heart and did not arise from any side of the divine excellency of the things of God or any taste of the soul-satisfying and life-giving good there is in them. Edward's sentiment here highlights an important element of the Apostle Paul's teaching and exhortation here in these two verses of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He talks about basically the thesis for the remainder of the book, which is to excel in Christian living. To excel in Christian living, but to excel more and more. But only when a believer's nature, but only when a believer's nurture that new nature with its resolute longing for God, do they, ne do they necessarily attain the kind of spiritual progress Paul had in mind. So we need to nurture the new nature. And that's, that's, the, that's the gist of what Jonathan Edwards says in this rather grammatically um, obstreperous uh, quote that he gives. You see, there's always a danger, friend, there's always a danger of Christians thinking they have no further need of progress in sanctification. But the reality is, on this side of eternity, no believer has ever come close. No believer has ever come close to what God desires for him spiritually. And as I'll share with you from Philippians 3, 12 through 14 in just a moment, because it knew so much truth, even because it knew so much truth, even the church as strong as the one was in Thessalonica might have been tempted to settle into spiritual, into a spiritual status quo. Think of Paul's solid instruction that he gave them when he was uh, there living th there, and, and, and particularly uh, he was the time he was there, the saints were living exemplary lives and had commended, he had commended them for, for that. Over here in chapter 1 and verses 2 through 4, he says, We give thanks to God always for you, making mention of you, in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of the faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of our God and Father, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. He goes on over here in verse 7, the same chapter. He says, So that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. And then in chapter 2, verses 13 through 14, he says, For this reason we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as is in the truth the word of God, which is also effectively works in you who believe. And he goes on to say that you, for you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God, which are in Judea in Christ Jesus. For you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen, just as they did, from the Judeans. So the reality is here, as a result, they might have thought that their condition was ideal. They were excelling. They were already doing really, really great. They were a, they were a wonderful church. As we've studied this for some time, 
you know, they were a church that was that's a worthy example. It was a church that had a worthy pastor. Um, and so the reality is, is that like so many folks, they may have fallen into the place of saying that they there was no need for improvement. There was no need to excel still more as Paul gives specifically that command and is our title today, Excel Still More. Um, Paul knew they could do better and encouraged them to do accordingly. And he was not satisfied with this even in his own progress. And as I told you earlier from Philippians chapter 3, Paul says this of himself, Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Jesus Christ. So, as a faithful teacher and as a faithful overseer, Paul's, Paul was diligent not only to impart truth to the flock, but also to apply it. To apply that truth to himself and to motivate his people to apply it in, in an ever-increasing way. If you want to go study it, you can see where he's done this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58. He's done it in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 verse I'm sorry 2 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 7 Philippians 1:9 right here in Philippians 4 verse 10 the apostle Paul says uh, and indeed you do so towards all the brethren who are at Macedonia but we urge you brethren that you increase more and more that you increase more and more and he does it over he even does it in 1 Thessalonians 3 verse 10 where he says night and day praying exceedingly that we may see your face and perfect what is lacking in your faith. So I think that when you look at this Thessalonian church, as we have studied it over these several weeks, they're a model church. I mean, these people get it. They, they are, they're, they're just, you know, they're, they're the best church around. I mean, these people are seeking to know God and His holiness and to enjoy Him forever. And Paul, Paul is encouraging them from his own experience, saying, you know, I haven't obtained these things yet that I want to obtain, but I press on to know Christ and Him crucified. Well, he's telling them, excel still the more. Continue doing more. Don't, don't fall into complacency. And it's not that he was afraid they had fallen in complacency. He is exhorting them and encouraging them to watch out for it. I think that's an apropos word for us today as uh, we need to continue excelling more and more in our faith. And in this passage, he shows us how to do that. He shows us how to do that. And I'm going to share that with you in just a moment. So he, he introduces three foundational truths, three foundational elements concerning this pursuit of excellence. He talks about the priority of excelling. He talks about the power and the principle of excelling. And he talks about the progress and the pressure of excelling. Those are our three points today. The first one is the priority of excelling. And if you'll notice with me in verse 1, he says, Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you, and that at the end he says that you excel still more. That 
Chapter 4, verse 1 and 2 turns to a discussion of the goals of spiritual excellence for the Thessalonians. It's clear from Paul's opening words. Notice he says, finally then. Finally then. So he is beginning the end of his message. He is beginning the end of his sermon. Now he's still got probably an hour to go, but he is beginning, he's beginning the end. And uh, so the main teaching section of the epistle concludes at verse 13 of chapter 3. And the basis of that content comes to the apostles' exhortation to excellence. So then he uses this word request. Finally, brethren, we request. Notice the word request in your text. It denotes a gentle, it's a humble suggestion offered among equals. That's something we get from the Greek text. This is something that is offered among equals. It does not contain the military overtones of a commander ordering a soldier or the slavery overturn overtones of a master commanding a slave or a monarch commanding a subject. Unlike one of those leaders, Paul was not browbeating the Thessalonians, but lovingly and gently and kindly requesting that they as his brethren persevere in sanctification, that they persevere in this process of sanctification. And similarly, he uses the word exhort. We request gently, humbly asking you, and we exhort you. Parakalumen is the Greek word here. It means to come alongside and encourage. Para means to come alongside, encourage. Kalumen, parakalumen, to come alongside and encourage them. And so the word could be used in an authoritative sense here as it is in other places, but Paul in the context is expressing his desire to help them in their spiritual growth. That's what he wants. And I mean, and again you say, well, they've already grown so far, yes, but they have not obtained yet. Having not considered to already obtain these things, they press on, as Paul said in Philippians. Paul exhibited much humility and much pastoral warmth towards these faithful believers. It is truly remarkable that there's no reason to be overwhelming, overbearing towards them because they were already living in a way that pleased God. They were already living that way. And so his attitude was one of grace and of great consideration with just enough urgency using the word exhort that they accept his exhortation not to be content with their spiritual growth, but to excel still more. Excel still more. You might want to write in the front of your Bible, at the very front, the top of the flyleaf, excel still more, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1, and put an exclamation point after it. Excel still more. If you're a believer, then that's the next step. Excel still more more. The word translate here, translated excel, is a very, very interesting Greek word that, that uh, uh, perisuite, that's a tongue, tongue tangler, and it means to abound, to be abundantly supplied, to overflow. It means to exist in full quantity to be over and above and around, to be advanced. Get that idea, over, above, and around, to be advanced. 
It's not the same word as baptizo, which means to be overwhelmed. But it is the similar thing. You're complete, and it, it doesn't mean immersed, but it does mean uh, completely uh, to be over, over, above, and around something, to be advanced. It, it's extraordinary. It's surpassing is the idea. And Paul used this word here in a comparative way um, in other places. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 8, I want to read it to you. 1 Corinthians 8, verse 8. And he says, He says, But food does not commend us to God, for neither do we eat or do better. I'm sorry, boy, that that's doesn't even make sense. That is a comparative way. All right, that's how it is working. I thought I was reading the wrong passage. But food does not commend us to God, for neither if we eat or if neither if we eat are we better, nor if we do not eat are we the worse. There's a comparative way. I, I admit this is somewhat weak. It is I'm actually reading a quote from a commentary, but it is taught it is a comparative way, a comparative way to tell the Thessalonians he was intent that they become spiritually extraordinary. Here in chapter 8, of verse 8 of 1 Corinthians, it's talking about whether you eat or you don't eat. Um, it doesn't commend us to God. It's one or the other in a comparative term. Here in, in our passage in 1 Thessalonians, he's using the same word again, but it's talking about excelling from where they are, comparing it to where they should be, excel the still more. And so they are to excel to a higher degree, and that is commendable to God. So Paul's believer for spiritual Paul's priority for believers was spiritual progress motivated. Now I want you to get this. Listen. Was spiritual progress motivated by a desire to know God? a desire to know God. The kind of strong desire the psalmist described saying, as the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for you, O God. So this concept of knowing God is is beyond knowing about God. One of the, the seminal work on knowing God outside of the Scripture is J.I. Packer's Knowing God. It's just simply a magnificent book. Knowing God. I would commend it to you. It would be worth your time to read it. A modern-day Puritan who has gone home to be with the Lord. Knowing God. R.C. Sproul's ministry, another wonderful man of God who has gone home to be with the Lord, was, was completely enamored with the holiness of God that was birthed in knowing God. And so this is his desire. For all believers, pursuit of knowing God is the basic component of spiritual growth. And I have several Bible verses on that, and for time I'm not going to read it, but the objective of knowing God should supersede even the desire to know His Word. Now now listen to what I'm saying, because that that's good. to some of you that listen to me regularly, that may cause you some consternation. But let me, let me finish the thought. The objective of knowing God should supersede even the desire to know His Word. That desire is simply the means of knowing the God of the Word. 
if gaining more information about the Bible and participating in additional spiritual activities such as praying and witnessing and serving are not linked to the desire to know God better, they will not be, bring spiritual growth to those who profess faith in Christ. So this isn't about carnal speculation or intellectual gratification of biblical knowledges or the nuances of the Bible or, you know, you know the, the difference between the apostles and the epistles. Um, <laughs> the reality of it is, is so that many can fall into the trap of, of becoming great biblical scholars and know it, but they can miss the God of the Bible instead of reading the Bible about the God of the Bible. And so this is what, this is the sense that's used in 1 John chapter 2. And I share this for now about 40 days. Every morning I read 1 John, every morning, early in the morning. And uh, this is something I'd like to share from you from those gleanings. 1 John chapter 2 verses 12 through 14 has something to do with this concept the, the, the Apostle John says, I am writing you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven you for His name's sake. I am writing you, fathers, because you know Him who has been from the beginning. I am writing you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I'm, I have written to you, children, because you know the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you know Him who has been from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong and the Word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Now, I know I probably wouldn't write that paragraph that way, but let me explain it to you. As I've been looking at this for several months and had, or a month and a half and wondered why is the grammar this way, and let me just show you three steps of the believer's growth if you want to write it down because that's what's right here. You have three steps of the believer's growth. This could be a sermon that could stand on its own and I'm going to give it to you in 20 seconds. Number one, he mentions little children who know their sins are forgiven. Little children in the faith, Christians who, are, who would be called little children, know their sins are forgiven. Then he talks about young men. He says, young men know the doctrine and are strong against Satan's lies, unlike the children that are mentioned in Ephesians 4.14. So you have little children who know their sins are forgiven, little children in the faith, not necessarily age, but you know when you begin out, you begin as a little children, a little child. Then as you grow, you become a youth and a young man who know the doctrine and are strong against Satan. And then he talks about fathers. Now, what can a father do that a young man and a little child doesn't do. A father reproduces. That's, that's what makes him a father, is that he's reproduced. And so he's talking about those that can pass their faith on, and he says, fathers who know not just doctrine, but the eternal God. The eternal God, that is the final goal of every believer, to know the eternal God. Now, you may be wondering, but I, I've trusted Jesus I take, I take the Scripture to be exactly what it says it is. I study it. I know God. No, you, you know about God. 
we say a lot of things that God will do that are not in the Scripture, and we say a lot of things that God would never do that's in the Scripture. And so this is knowing God, knowing God. And Paul's, Paul's encouragement, his request and exhortation to them is that they excel still more in knowing God. He, he even says to himself, he has not obtained the fullness of this knowledge, but he has, he has reconciled himself to know nothing but Christ Jesus and Him crucified. And Jesus says, to know me is to know the Father. To see me is to see the Father. To hear me is to hear the Father. And so you have the priority of excelling. We need to know God. To excel still the more to know Him. Not our imagination, but what the Bible reveals about Him. To know Him. And then there is the power and the principle for excelling. Number two, the power and principle for excelling. He says in verse 1, "...in the Lord Jesus, that as you received from us instruction how you ought to walk and please God." You see, in the Lord Jesus can modify the you in the text. In the Lord Jesus, look at your text. It's the second clause. In the Lord Jesus, that as you. So it is speaking of you and refers to those who are regenerate and share the divine life of God by being in Christ Jesus. So this is not a lost person. This is a born-again believer. Certainly only the regenerate possess the spiritual power and insight to accomplish the objectives of spiritual growth. And this reality is clearly a burden to the apostle's heart, and it is demonstrated in his prayer for the Thessalonians where he says in chapter 3, verse 12, May the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another. The only way love or any other Christian virtue can be increased is when the Lord causes it to happen. And so the power to excel comes from the power of the indwelling Christ. And Paul called the Thessalonians to spiritual excellency, which they could attain because they were, as the text says, in the Lord Jesus. In the Lord Jesus. And that phrase could also refer to the verb request and exhort and therefore mean in behalf of the Lord Jesus. That is, with His authority with his authority. Paul often added force to his appeal by reminding the church leaders of the authority he had in Christ as an apostle. The power for excelling, however, does not operate in a vacuum. The reality is it works according to the spiritually delineated, time-tested, God-approved principles. God, I'm sorry, Paul refers as divine principles, spiritual truth, and gospel um, doctrine that the Thessalonians had received. See the text? It says, received from him and his companions when they first arrived at Thessalonica in Acts chapter 17, verses 2 through 4. And he mentions again in 1 Thessalonians 1, 5, and 6, and other places. Although the term in your text, instruction, is not in the original text, it is implied in the doctrine, doctrines Paul taught on how they ought to walk. How they ought to walk. The, the teachings that tell us how to walk are rightfully called doctrine. When you, when you hear a person say that they don't want doctrine or that doctrine is a man's 
creation that number one they don't understand that doctrine is all through the scripture it's not man's invention it's what jesus has given as instruction on how to walk and so the instruction on how to walk is called doctrine well i don't want to have doctrine just give me the bible you can't have a bible without doctrine you can have false doctrines without the bible but you can't have doctrine without the bible and you cannot have a bible without doctrine it's just a reality this is all over the Bible, Romans chapter 12, Galatians chapter 5, chapter 6, Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 6, Colossians chapter 3. And so the saints already knew the fundamentals of Christian living. Most of you that are on tonight already know the fundamentals of Christian living. You, you have taken the time to listen to this as a matter of spiritual discipline uh, to grow in your faith, you know that you'll receive solid teaching here. And so you will receive, you will not receive my words, you will receive the Word of God. And so they knew the fundamentals of Christian living. They knew what was needed to please God. And here he's it, literally that term please God in the Greek means strive to please God. It means strive to please Him and to glorify Him in everything. And so let me give you 10, just 10, a list of 10 when we're talking about um, the power and the principle of excelling. Here are just 10 things. They need to confess their sins regularly. This is a regular thing to Christian living. Confess their sins regularly. To pray continually and trust the Lord. To pray continually and trust the Lord to pursue humility, to be content with God's will, to be willing to suffer for His name, to evangelize the lost, to celebrate the Lord's table, to care for one another, to honor God in their marriages and families, and to be diligent and fruitful in all avenues of service. That's Christian living. I mean, if, if you don't know some of those things, send us an email, james at yourjourneyonline.com, and I'll send that list to you. I'd be happy to do that because it has all the Bible verses with it. This would be a wonderful course of just beginning instruction and discipleship for a new believer. You need to confess your sins. You need to continually trust in the Lord and rely upon Him. You need to pursue humility. You need to be content with the will of God willing to suffer for His name. You need to evangelize the lost and celebrate the communion. You need to take care of one another. You need to honor God in your family and in your marriage. And you need to be diligent and fruitful in all the avenues of service that you have. It'd be a great way to start helping someone. Paul and Silas and Timothy had taught the Thessalonians how they ought to live as Christians. They taught them these things. And they were already obeying them as one having the ears to hear. And so the reality of this is where they are. They're already doing these things. And so much more because that's not all there is. And so much more. But then you have the progress and the pressure of excelling as we move into the last point. The progress and the pressure of excelling. Notice in verse 1, the third clause, it says, just as you actually do walk, and in verse 2, for you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. By the authority of the Lord Jesus. 
You see, spiritual growth is not an instantaneous process. I haven't found many new believers that have been discouraged because it is not an instantaneous process. But unfortunately, I have known far too many believers who have been believers for a while that treat other people like it should be an instantaneous process, when in fact it wasn't for them either. And so the reality of it is, is spiritual growth is not an instantaneous process. It does not culminate overnight. Instead, the pursuit of spiritual excellence is a lifelong commitment. You begin that process the moment that you're saved by God Himself. And as you walk in daily obedience, as the text says here, daily obedience, believers gradually and surely become more and more like Christ Jesus. It's a daily experience. And Paul's exhortations to the Thessalonians was a confirmation of the fact and a reminder to them to keep progressing just as they already actually did walk, as he says in the third clause of verse 1. They were on a pathway of progressive sanctification. This is a theological truth. I am sanctified and I am being sanctified. We call that progressive sanctification. And Paul wanted them to stay on it and have a patient, determined mindset of, long, of a long-distance runner or a boxer going for 15 rounds or as he later described in the Corinthian letter where he says, Do you not know that those who run the race will run, but only one receives a prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. Then they then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable reward. Therefore I run in such a way as not without aim, I box in such a way as not being beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. So the pressure for the Thessalonians to stay on the path of righteousness and excel still more and more in their walk of Christ with Christ is derived from the fact that they knew, notice the text, they knew what commandments Paul gave them by the authority of the Lord Jesus in verse 2. Christ Himself authorized, authorized Paul's exhortation to the church in Thessalonica. The word commandments, the word commandments, paraangelius, refers to strong, authoritative directives delivered by a commanding officer to his subordinate, or a king to his subjects, or a master to his slave. That meant the church, the church should not take the apostles' admonition lightly. He gently requests, gently extorts, exhorts them that they grow all the more that they excel still more, but now he turns up the heat, so to speak. He not only reminds them of the very commandments that he gave them, but he implicitly did concerning his earlier instruction to them and reminds them of the divine authority by which he ministered to them. So he's made, he gently requests and exhorts 
but he emphatically speaks to them here, reminding them that his gentle request and exhortation comes as a command from Jesus Christ. So Paul's directive did not originate from some arbitrary human sanction or some remote ecclesiastical authority. This didn't come from a presbytery or a bishopric. It didn't come from a denomination. This came from the Lord. And instead, as I'm saying, this came not only from the Lord, but it came in the authority of the Lord Jesus and obedience to them, therefore, was was mandatory. They had to obey what they were hearing. This gentle kind, gracious exhortation to be overwhelmed above, in, above, below, beside, and all around and excelling still the more. And so, friends, Christians who seek to know God better, Christians who seek to know, to know God better, to love Him more, and to obey Him more thoroughly, must live according to the commands of Scripture. You just can't do it any other way. You must live according to the commands of Scripture. Such believers, consequently, will then experience growth towards spiritual excellence. You will never arrive at spiritual excellence from your experience. You will arrive there from your obedience. So if you don't get anything today, write that down. You will not arrive at spiritual excellence from your experience. You will arrive at spiritual excellence from your obedience. And it is your obedience to the Lord, and it is the Lord of the Bible. All right? Such believers will experience growth towards spiritual excellence though the through the power of the indwelling Christ and by their obedience to the truth of the Word, And Paul spoke of this progress as beholding the glory of the Lord and being transformed into the same image from glory to glory by the Holy Spirit in 2 Corinthians 3.18. You see, the glory of the Lord is in Scripture that, when comprehended by the sanctified mind, progressively changes and elevates believers to an increasing Christ-likeness just like Jonathan Edwards shares from his memoirs. And this this occurs when the unveiled face that is undistracted and unhindered, when the child of God looks in the magnificent mirror of the Scripture, which reflects to him the glory of the Lord. So may you excel still more. God bless you. Thank you so much for being with us tonight. Have a great week.